Persecution will come. It can take many forms. But when it comes, he says, be glad in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. The church in America hasn't known a lot of persecution, but it is beginning to change. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 to 5, which talk about the effect tribulation have on the believer. Earlier this week, we began a look at the power of persecution in transforming Christian believers into individuals able to be better used by God. As we pick up today, we see that persecution also has the effect of bringing the glory of God on those who experience it. God says, when you are persecuted for His name's sake, the Spirit of glory rests upon you. The Shekinah glory was the very presence of God in the Old Testament. Stephen, when he's being stoned to death, the Shekinah glory so filled his countenance, his face shone like the face of an angel. It's what Peter describes in chapter 1 as joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you are never more a recipient of God's presence and God's power than when you are reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 16, he further develops our theology. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. Instead of shame, we ought to feel honor. That's the way the apostles felt when they were flogged by the Jewish religious leaders of their day. In Acts 5, Luke tells us, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We're not to be ashamed. We're to glorify God. Not feeling ashamed is negative. Glorifying God, that's positive. And it takes both to be a balanced witness. And if we seek to glorify God, we'll not be ashamed of the name of the Lord Jesus. We won't be crippled by persecution when it comes. We will give God honor and praise. Polycarp, the great bishop of Smyrna in the middle of the second century, was arrested for his faith and threatened with death. And one of the historians of the day recorded the event. That great pastor said, 80 and six years I've served him, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The Roman officer charged with the execution said, Sir, I have respect for your age. Simply say, in reference to the Christians, away with these atheists and you will live. And so Polycarp stood up, surrounded by idolaters all around him, and he said, away with these atheists. And they burned him alive. Listen, people watch our reaction to suffering. And I may have told you this story before, but that guy who filled his mouth with beer and spat it all over me, his senior year, the last week before I graduated, came to me and I led him to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for it is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? The argument is very clear. If the saved go through this life with great difficulty, what is going to be the outcome of the lost man? 
Now he's quoting, as you can see in the New American Standard from a change of typeset, Proverbs 11.31. And when he says he, we are saved with difficulty, he's not suggesting that our salvation can be unsure, that we can lose our salvation, because he's already affirmed our eternal security in this letter. Nor is he suggesting that God struggles in saving us, that God somehow is weak in the process of trying to secure us. He's not doubting the outcome of our salvation. He is simply reminding us of the difficult road to heaven. Again, it's what Paul told the saints in Lystra. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Every day is not Friday. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, again, what will there be outcome? You know, again, don't miss this. If it's with difficulty that we're saved, in other words, God doesn't promise you an easy life. Don't let anybody tell you that if you receive Jesus, it's all going to be all rose petals and no thorns and thistles. There's going to be heartache for following the Lord Jesus. But listen, as much as anything, this is a compassionate plea towards those who are lost among us. You see, God tells us in his word, throughout his word, there's coming a day when he will make every wrong right. God is just. He will pay back with affliction those who afflict you when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Paul says they'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and the glory of his power. Peter like the Lord Jesus, is giving us a compassionate plea. Jesus said, you have heard it said you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That verse has nothing to do with pacifism, as some of our dear brethren have used it out of context. He's dealing with the saints of God who are persecuted for living for God, and he says, love even your enemies. You don't develop the attitude, God will get you. Get him, God. No. Paul said there was a time when I persecuted the church of God. But what did God do? He had mercy upon me. Verse 19, he concludes, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, because it's part of God's will for our life, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. Now go back to Romans 5. There's something else I want you to see. First of all, not only how maturity is displayed by us, I want you to notice how maturity is developed in us. How maturity is developed in us. Look again at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Again, underscoring you're thinking that word, no. There's something you must know or understand if this is going to be developed in your life. First, no, he says that tribulation brings about perseverance. We couldn't learn perseverance. Some of your translations say endurance. Apart from tribulation, because without tribulation and suffering, there would be nothing we'd have to endure. So he's saying, listen, you can rejoice in your trials. That's what James says, knowing that it produces endurance. And let endurance, it's a choice we have, let endurance have its perfect result. And if we don't let and respond to endurance and, I mean, to trials and, and difficulties and tribulation properly... At least with trials, God often has to repeat them. And in tribulation, if we don't respond properly, we lose our witness. We might even break our fellowship and our intimacy with the Lord. Now, perseverance is a Greek word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament, stability. He's talking about steel in your spine. 
that if you have a biblical theology of persecution, that when it comes, if you're thinking your thoughts after God's thoughts, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, instead of it causing you to crumble, it will cause you to stand strong as a child of God. That's what he wants for us. Jesus also taught that tribulation will often reveal whether or not a person is a genuine believer. Not only does it grow the believer, but sometimes it separates the believer from the unbeliever. Remember in the parable of the sower, he said uh, of the rocky soil, and, those, and, and the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. They believe here. That's profession. They profess to be born again, and there's a lot of folks who do. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation, in time of testing, they fall away. Why? Because they're not truly converted. It's here, but with the heart man believes unto righteousness. In the parallel text, in Mark's gospel, he says it this way. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution, philipsis, same word, arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I remember talking to a friend whose name is Kevin, and Kevin supposedly received Christ, and he went back and began to live for Christ, and they started saying, heaven, Kevin. Hey, here comes heaven, Kevin. Here comes Kevin, heaven. That's all it took, and he crumbled. Jesus thought that very often a mark between a true believer and unbeliever, and one of the things that will often separate them is tribulation. I mean, what would happen? What would happen if Antichrist had all of his agents here, and he had a gun to your head, and he said, renounce Christ? What would you do? How would you decide? Many of God's saints have experienced those very things. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. If you continually, habitually respond properly to tribulation, God is going to develop proven character. The word proven here is like our word sterling that we put before silver. He's talking about character that is devoid of impurities, proven character, where the slag has been removed and like gold you shine. Nothing's wasted by God for the child of God. Again, Job says, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, look at verse 4, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character what? Hope. You say, well, how does this give me hope? Listen, when you go through tribulation in a God-honoring way, you experience the three benefits that Peter outlined for us, and you just see God at work in your life. You see God developing character. You say, man, I can't believe the way I'm responding. This is supernatural. Look what God is doing, and what is he doing? He's developing a sense of hope that the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Count it all joy. Why? Knowing that endurance produces maturity, that you might be complete, mature, teleos, lacking in nothing. 
Now, I, don't, I hope you didn't miss it, but there's a beautiful circle here. It starts with hope, and it ends with hope. Did you see that in verse 2? He says, we exult, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, we rejoice in our promise that God will make us more like himself. That's what tribulation does, and then it ends with hope. He talks about here at the end of this verse, improving character builds hope. It starts with hope, it ends with hope. That's what tribulation does. It encourages you, it gives you a sense that God is sovereign, He is in control, He loves me, He cares about me, and He is committed to me. Third and finally this morning, I want you to think about how maturity is determined for us, how it's determined for us. Again, verse five, and hope does not disappoint. He's not talking here about all hope, because certainly there are some hopes in life that have brought disappointment even for the people of God. How many times have you said, oh, I, ho I had hoped. A parent losing a child to sickness said, well, I hoped that he would have been cured. Or an employer who has great aspirations for one of his workers, I had hoped he would have turned out differently. Or a person watching their life savings turn into nothing and they thought, I had hoped differently for my investments. Or a mother standing over the casket of a prodigal, and she says, well, I hoped that it would be different for him. And on and on and on we could go. I had hoped in that election. I had hoped in that purchase. I had hoped in that child. I had hoped and I hoped and I hoped and I hoped and I hoped. Now, before we're done, when we come to the eighth chapter, Paul is going to deal with the disappointing hopes, and I don't want you to miss that. But here he says, in hope does not disappoint. He's going to develop it. There's a certain hope, the Christian hope. In fact, it's interesting, in my Greek Bible, it reads, and the hope does not disappoint. It's articular. He's not just talking about any old hope. He's talking about the hope, the Christian hope. It doesn't disappoint you. The King James says it won't leave you ashamed. How do you know that this is just not another form of positive thinking? Number one, because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And number two, because God loves us. His love has been poured out into our hearts. And when we come to verses 6 through 11, he's going to move past that subjective love to that objective love as seen in the cross. But look right now at verse 5. And hope does not disappoint. And why not? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, let me say, verse 5 will make no sense to you if you have not been born again. The love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the hearts of those people who have been saved. And this is the first mention of God the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And there's an assumption in all of Paul's letters that saved people have the Holy Spirit. And so he will say in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. The moment you are justified, you are regenerated. You're not regenerated then, you believe. The moment you believe, you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The love of the Spirit is poured out in your heart. In Jesus' words, you are born again. And that's important because he said, unless you are born again, you'll never go to heaven. And so here he gives us a promise. God's Holy Spirit and His love, and there's an experiential dimension to it. Not only do I know that God loves me here, I know He loves me here. There, there, there's an experiential, subjective dimension to the love of God. It's just overwhelming at times. And we'll spend more time on that later in this doctrinal section. But let me see if we can apply this this morning as we leave. Let me suggest three applications as we finish. Number one, I want to remind you, if you are truly living for Christ, you will be persecuted. 
you will be persecuted. Turn to the book of Revelation for just a moment. It will be worth turning. Revelation chapter 2. If you know the book of Revelation, you know that chapters 2 and 3 deal with seven real churches that existed in the first century in Asia Minor, today what we would call Turkey. And those churches are in many ways representative of the church throughout the ages. And what I think too, in my own personal study and conviction of it, that these seven churches also represent seven stages of church history. The last stage describing the church at Laodicea, a lukewarm church. With that said, in Revelation 2 and verse 9, he deals with the church of Smyrna. There's only two of the seven churches that Jesus does not rebuke. This church and the church at Philadelphia. Have you found it? Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation, your philipsis, and your poverty, but you are rich. The church at Smyrna was a healthy church comprised of godly people. They had experienced a lot of persecution, a lot of tribulation, and that led to financial poverty. And so while they did not have much of the world's goods, they were very wealthy in Jesus' eyes, spiritually speaking. Now look at the church at Laodicea, the seventh church that he describes in chapter 3 and verse 15. He said, I, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You're not cold enough to be considered hot. You're not hot enough to be considered cold. You're lukewarm. And God would rather have you hot and headed for heaven or cold and headed for hell than to be on the fence. And the word here, without being too graphic, it's the word that means to throw up. Figuratively speaking, God throws up over lukewarmness. G. Campbell Morgan had it well when he said, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Why? Because the lukewarm Christian says, I know God, I've met God, but God doesn't excite me. The world does. Because you say, verse 17, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. These are real believers. Why? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Laodicea was a church rich in material prosperity. If they existed in this day, the parking lot would be filled with caddies, Lincolns, BMWs, Lexus, you name it. Nothing wrong with being rich. The only problem is that while they were rich materially, they were poor spiritually. And so God disciplines his people. And there are many people in this world who are poor financially, but they are rich spiritually. And there are other people who are very rich spiritually, Christians. And they are rich spiritually. They're rich materially, they're rich spiritually. And some that are rich materially and who are poor spiritually. Listen, whether you are rich or poor in this world's economy, you can be rich spiritually if you walk with Christ. And if you do walk with Christ, you will experience persecution. Some of you say, well, I've never been persecuted. You will be. Let me tell you some reasons why sometimes people are not. Either number one, because they've never been saved. 
And if you've never been saved, you are so much like the world, you don't bother anybody. The Spirit of Christ is not in you, and so you do not provoke an unbelieving world. Other people are not persecuted because like the church at Laodicea, they're lukewarm. And they're glad to have you around because you are an excuse for their unbelief. Or number three, you haven't been persecuted because you're such a new Christian. And you just haven't had much time to grow. But you keep growing, and I'm telling you, there's coming a time when you will provoke an unbelieving world because persecution is a clash between two irreconcilable systems. Or fourth, you haven't been persecuted yet because you're not verbal enough with your faith. Now, I'm not talking about just making a public confession of faith. One of the first steps a believer does when they come down this aisle as a symbol of their conversion, they get baptized up in that box. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about speaking for Christ, what we call gossiping the gospel, living for Christ, not just in deed but in word. Do you remember what Jesus said in the book of Acts as Luke recorded it? He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. The word witness is the Greek word maturus. We get our English word martyr from it. You know what a martyr is? A martyr is someone who dies for the cause of Christ. And when you read the book of Acts, without exception, in every situation, God's people are persecuted for speaking up for Jesus Christ. You begin to speak up for Jesus Christ, not only be a witness in your character, but with your mouth. And you're going to have a collision with an unbelieving world. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2. You might want to jot this down. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. Don't turn there. Let me just read it to you. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Now you may not realize it, but if you're a growing, maturing Christian, you have a fragrance. You know, sometimes like some guys aftershave or women perfume, they wear it so much they don't even smell it anymore. And then someone comes up and says, boy, that smells good. Well, listen. When you live for Christ and you are a peacemaker and you're sharing the gospel and explaining to people how they can have peace with God, number one, you are a sweet aroma to God, Paul tells me in verse 14. And some people will smell that aroma, some unbelievers, and say, man, I like that smell. And you can point them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Other people, when you speak up for Christ, they're going to go, yuck. And they won't like what you represent. Instead of being an aroma to life, you're an aroma to death. So if you live for Christ, you'll be persecuted. Secondly, understand persecution may take many forms. It may take many forms. You don't have to be burned at the stake to be persecuted. Sometimes it can be physical, like the evangelical high school students in Indonesia who have been beheaded recently. Maybe it will be like the saints in Pakistan, where over a hundred homes of born-again believers were burnt to the ground, some of them in it. It may be physical, but very often and most often it's verbal, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount spoke about verbal persecution, and I think very often that's the choice means that the devil uses. 
Because like Tertullian, when he described physical persecution, and as you see it in the Acts, he said the, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. It fires him up to go even further. But there's something about verbal persecution that if your perspective is not right, it will discourage you and you'll begin to pull back and let the criticism just kind of paralyze you. What are some of you going to do if your friends start talking about you and they begin to slander you and twist your words? What are you, some of you middle and high school students, going to do when you won't watch on your little phone porn like they are watching? And they don't want anything to do with you anymore. What are you, some of you Marines and Navy personnel, going to do when they begin to jeer you because you won't go out and participate in switching wives or get drunk till you can't stand? Persecution will come. It can take many forms. But when it comes, he says, be glad in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. The church in America hasn't known a lot of persecution, but it is beginning to change. And I want to, pers I, I want to prepare you, and I want you to prepare your children and your grandchildren. Third and finally, let me just say, not following Christ will cost you even more. Not following Jesus is siding with the world. You can't be neutral. He said you're either for him, or you're against him. And when Jesus would speak to prospective disciples through the Gospels, he gave them the whole package. He reminded them of the cost sometimes of following him. And there will be some people that will love you because they love Christ. And there will be some people who will hate you because they hate Christ. Following Christ will cost you something. But not following him will cost you so much more. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? In the end, he loses his soul. You have to choose sides because you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, you said friendship with the world is hostility to God. And as I've been preaching, the Spirit of God has been speaking to some who are lost to some who are saved. And some of us, Father, you know that we're just lukewarm. And we're sitting on a fence. And you'd rather have us on one side or the other, but not in between. So let judgment begin with the household of faith. And remind us today, Father, that if we truly live for Christ, your son said it will come. Blessed are you when persecution comes. Help us, O oh God, to prepare our own hearts and to prepare our children. That they would not fold up when a world comes against them for living for Jesus. O oh God, thank you that nothing is wasted in our life. That tribulation produces proven character. And proven character brings hope, a sure and certain expectation that what you began you will complete so help us today to reflect on these truths to renew our own hearts and mind and help someone today who's never received jesus in simple childlike faith to say lord jesus save me may he be honored we ask it all in his holy name amen
For a copy of today's study, Maturity Through Tribulation, use the Search the Scriptures app available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy simply by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM22. Tomorrow we begin a look at being secure in the love of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>